if you hear their side of the story, they say they're very put upon all these regulations, all this land being controlled outside the state. I'm sure there are a lot of difficulties with that, but that's not just their land. That land belongs to some kid sitting on a stoop in Philadelphia, too. That land belongs to all of us. This is Infrastructure Junkies. Welcome, Infrastructure Junkies, to your show. This is a podcast created by right-of-way professionals for right-of-way professionals. The Infrastructure Junkies podcast is the voice of the right-of-way industry, exploring eminent domain, right-of-way acquisition, and infrastructure development. Great news. Go on. A popular guest returns today to Infrastructure Junkies, and we can't wait to hear more of his stories. I'm Dave Arnold. And I'm Kristen Short-Bennett. Season four of Infrastructure Junkies kicked off with a wildly popular episode with renowned author Howard Mansfield. Howard wrote a fantastic book that gives an alternative perspective to our industry and a book that everybody in our field should read. That book, The Habit of Turning the World Upside Down, is a series of stories and lessons on the background of America's relationship with real property and the effects of infrastructure development on real people. In episode 59 of Infrastructure Junkies, Howard joined us to discuss two chapters in that book, one on the dismal swamp and another tragic story of a displacee named Romaine Tenney who paid for the project with his life. Howard is back with us today to discuss two more chapters from the habit of turning the world upside down. Mm, What are we talking about? Well, one is going to be his interpretation of the land of many uses and what that means to us and to our country. And then we're going to turn our attention to a chapter called My Roots Are Deeper Than Your Pockets. I can't wait. And listeners, if you have not bought and devoured the book, The Habit of Turning the World Upside Down, get with the program. It is a game changer for people in our industry and really anyone in America. And I also have very exciting news. We recently learned that this book is available to download on audiobooks. And I actually listened to it this morning for a little while. The best news ever is that it's narrated by the author himself. So go check it out. It's a wonderful listen, and it's a wonderful read. There's nothing quite like hearing an author's book in his own words. Hi, Howard. Hey. Hello. (laughs) (laughs) Howard, what have you been doing since January? I Actually, I just finished up a new book. It's about a totally different topic. It's about World War II and my father's service in it. He just died a couple of years ago. He never talked about it like most of the men of that generation. And when we're cleaning up the house, I found some records of what he was doing over there and in, in England and Europe and got to learn what it was like to oh, be there. Wow. What's yeah. the name of it? When does it come out? It's called I Will Tell No War Stories, which is what he always said. It'll be out next spring. Oh, wow. Today. I can't yeah, wait to pick that up. Can't wait. It's very, very different. I, I had a, a a great uncle that went in the first wave of Normandy, and he and I were very close when I was a kid before he passed away. And I can remember trying to get him to tell war stories. He would say nothing. And he was in the same, thick of it, just like your dad. Thing. Same thing. Yeah. Yeah. Can't wait to hear about it. Can't wait. Oh, thank you. Um, thank you. Howard, the land of many uses. This yes. is this is a chapter in your your book, The Habit of Turning the World Upside Down, and it kind of gives an overview of the history of American forests, the conservation movement, conservation and its intersection with commerce, and uh, unfortunately, kind of a depressing, perilous future of our forests. It doesn't seem to be as safe as you would like to think that they would be. So let's kick this off. Like, what's been happening? 
to American forests throughout the 1800s. That was a bad century for American timber. Well, there was just a rapacious logging of the land. Most of the uh, settlers, the Europeans, came from a land where there wasn't much standing wood, and they saw all this old-growth forest, and the ethic was to use it, use it hard, use it up, and move on, or mine and move, settle and sell. And there was no land ethic as we think of it today. It took a long time to develop that. So you'd have mountains of old-growth forests just clear-cut, slashed, fires starting. You'd have wood just burned to get it out of the way. Tremendous, tremendous use of wood and forests. I remember a a part in the book that just kind of made me want to cry, talking about these trees that were hundreds of years old. Sometimes they would just chop those down just to make it easier to roll the bigger trees down the hill. Yeah, so in the White Mountains, which is in the north of New Hampshire, the state actually owned the land and then sold it off for like $6 an acre, equivalent to $115 an acre today. And to get the spruce, which they thought had no worth, 200-year-old spruce, they would just knock it down so they could roll the bigger trees over them and get them and log them and take them out. And this led to all sorts of consequences. There was tremendous fires that got started, and then there was tremendous runoff. The runoff, in a sense, is what ultimately led to the creation of the national forest all east of the Mississippi. Now, Howard, you said something about these were, I guess, immigrants coming from Europe who didn't have a lot of standing timber timber or old-growth forests. So does this represent an American attitude towards real property or a European immigrant attitude towards real property? Mm. Wow, you stumped me on that one. Maybe it's one and the same. There is this sense that it's a resource and it has no other life beyond that. And you just, you, it's property, you take it, you get that resource and you move on. There's uh, one of the great, they call them lumber kings at the time in the muckraking press in the late 19th century. There's this fellow, J.E. Henry. And he said, oh, gosh, he yeah. crystallized it. He's quoted as saying, I never see the tree yet that didn't mean a damn sight more to me going under the sewer than it did standing on a mountain. That's the attitude completely. Ooh. You can't be more concise than that. Yeah. And I wonder if back then they just figured that there was an inexhaustible supply of trees of timber kind of the way we feel about fossil fuels and the way we feel about the ocean still right yeah that's the attitude yeah yeah so did it take finally seeing some consequences from this for people to go hold on just a second it took an amazing reform effort to develop this land ethic this forest ethic and the effort that eventually gives us uh, 52 national forests east of the mississippi Got started in New Hampshire in 1901. There's a group of nine men and one woman who found the Society for the Protection of the Hampshire Forest, which is still going. And for 10 years, they campaigned to get the forest safe. And they made the argument on land management. They made the argument on recreation. They made the argument on national pride. Look at these great forests we have. Europe doesn't. They made the argument on aesthetics. And no, no, no. Got nowhere. 40 bills got to Congress. 40 bills were voted down. But they didn't give up. And the bills really ran into this logjam with the Speaker of the House, Joe Cannon, who mm-hmm. is said to have been the most powerful speaker ever. He said uh, 50% of plans for reform are harmful and the rest are just useless. He didn't believe in any of that. He, he was, grew up poor in the Wabash in Indiana. By age 14, he was in charge of his family. He worked hard. He didn't see anything like this. So even though this reform effort keeps building, state legislatures endorse it, governors endorse it, I believe the president endorse it. Finally, towards the end of his reign, he turns to this fellow John, John Wingate Weeks? Yeah, Wingate Weeks, who is a conservative banker, 
grew up in the White Mountains, his ancestors in the White Mountains. He's, um, in the book I call him a, a practical visionary. He's definitely a conservative, he's a banker, but he can see, see a much bigger picture than Joe Cannon can. So he goes and takes this bill, and it's not about aesthetics, it's not about environment, it's not about preservation, it's about commerce. It's mm -hmm. what we call today a jobs bill. Mm -hmm. He recasts it. And he says, because all this runoff coming out of the White Mountains has shut down these huge mills in Concord and Manchester, and Manchester had one of the largest cotton mills in the world, the Amoskeag Mills, and they can't run because it, it, all this runoff was coming. He said, we have to protect the Mer Merrimack River, and therefore we have to protect industry. So we're going to protect commerce. So therefore, it becomes a matter of interstate commerce. That's where the federal government comes in. And the whole thing turns on this really lumpy phrase, the navigability of navigable streams. And don't make me say that again. <laughs> I won't. I wouldn't dare. <laughs> and, and, that's what, and that's eventually what becomes the Weeks Act is because you're protecting watersheds. You're protecting those streams. So essentially, commerce destroys the White Mountains and these other forests, and commerce saves it. So... Essentially, we have the National Forest to protect private property. That's how it was cast, and that's how eventually it happened. And I, I remember there were a, a lot of proposed bills before that that didn't get passed because they would mention words like scenery or not a, yeah, could fact, not. They were not going to pass anything that had anything to do with the forest being pretty. Joe Cannon famously said, and the quote was, not one cent for scenery, period. <laughs> uh, he was a real no-nonsense guy. So the, those forests are there out of commerce, out of, and that, when you get to the title of the chapter, and those signs you see when you're in national forests, which are different than national parks, which are different than wilderness areas, the, you know, those funky kind of brown and yellow signs with that kind of swoopy shape, mm -hmm. and it says under it, welcome to whatever forest, land of many uses. And you're driving past, you go, oh, I don't know what that is. That's because national forests are logged. National forests have within them, 50% of them are actually private property. This is kind of odd checkerboard. And the Weeks Act did not acquire the mineral rights, mm -hmm. the subsurface rights. It's what you legal people call a split estate, apparently. And in some parts of the country, that doesn't matter. But in other places, like the Allegheny National Forest, that mattered tremendously when Marcellus Shale Field was found and the other, and they started fracking in there. And the Forest Service, and even though they're managing the land, cannot stop subsurface mining. So there is mining that goes on in national forests. You can mine there, but you have to show the legal phrases, due regard for the surface owner. I have no idea what due regard would be. I would hate, you're a lawyer, I would hate to have you tell me, okay, we're going to go to court, we're going to press this due regard thing. I would not be counting my payday in that case. <laughs> it just seems so, so amorphous. So, so that's how we got our national forests. And how, who, so you said that didn't include the mineral rights. So are the mineral rights privately held? Yes, you can. So under the National Forest, if there are minerals in play, you could have a, a, a claim there that you might exercise someday. Wow. Which I didn't yeah. know until I started researching. It was a big surprise to me how it seems like you go there. It seems, A, like the trees have been there forever. Yeah. And B, it seems, well, we've drawn a line around this. We're saving it. And it's not quite that. It's a great achievement, but it's a fragile achievement, too. Yeah. In your chapter, Howard, the logging or land companies are kind of made out to be the villains of the chapter, and justifiably so. And what I found very interesting, and you mentioned the one called the New Hampshire Land Company, and you said in your oh. chapter it's the leading villain. But what surprised me is the cutthroat tactics employed 
by the land companies or the logging companies where they would acquire land for by paying back taxes until they had total control they wouldn't sell timber to local loggers and they'd force them out they uh, uh refused to sell land to innkeepers i don't even know why but it was extremely cutthroat they wanted to have and it's just a hallmark of commerce of that era in america they wanted a monopoly they want it had to be them and them only they didn't want you on even on a few acres having an inn or a seminary or a, or a small logging operation yourself just to keep your family going. They would not hear of any of it. It was going to be industrial scale logging and that's it. But, yeah. Th- but really, but I'd like you to explain that a little bit more. I don't quite get it. They wanted a monopoly of the property or the use wanted, of the yeah, property they, or they wanted to exclude everybody from occupying the land. Like, what's up? As, as I understand it, they wanted total freedom to do what they wanted when they wanted where they wanted on that land right they wanted unfettered property rights if the reformers of the era are right that's what they wanted and they didn't want any kind of dinky lager or some kind of skin and people complaining about fires or cutting they wanted none of that they wanted their machinery and their men in and they're out that's what they wanted well much of your book focuses around your neck of the woods which is new hampshire apparently a beautiful beautiful part of the country what type of timber were they logging and what were the uses for that timber? Uh, mostly hardwoods, as I understand it, and just everything. You know, the country was building. We're a new country. One of the uses, until railroads started running coal on coal, was wood. You could Google this. You could look up and you'll see yards and yards and yards of cordwood. You know how wood is cut up to mm-hmm. fire. But picture mountains of this wood going on for a mile or so, heaped up. Because you can imagine how much wood it would take to keep a steam engine going just a mile before right. you got to coal. Right. So everything, you know, railroad ties, houses, shipping crates, potash, y- you name it. It was used up as fast as they could get their hands on it. And then what were they doing with the property? Just abandoning it or selling it for pennies on the acre? Or what happened when the wood was gone? As my understanding is when the wood was gone, they were done with it. They would sell it. They would move on. It wasn't worth anything to them anymore. They would just leave it. And that's when the fire started to blow the slash and everything. And that's when the runoff happened because there was nothing to stop the rain from coming down. We've seen pictures of clear cutting in the Amazon. It's the same thing, but earlier. Mm-hmm. You know, the same attitude. All right, let's go back to the Weeks Act. You began yeah. to touch on that, and it was the namesake of a guy by the name of Wingate Weeks. And yeah. can you describe in your own words, you told us how we got there, but what's the substance of the act in simplest terms? The substance of the act is that the federal government can buy up land and protect it as long as it's protecting commerce in some manner. So the government becomes a manager of forests, which is what the people behind the Weeks Act always wanted. Now we finally have a national policy. Now we're managing our forests. Now there's a whole plan for it. Now people are looking after the environment. And eventually, as I think I just mentioned, 52 national forests are founded east of the Mississippi. Huge. It's a huge, huge, huge thing. I think people, Americans tend to think maybe those forests were just always there like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, right. But it took a, a tremendous, a tremendous effort to achieve that. And they, I mean, I'm kind of in awe of it. 10 years, 40 bills, and they just hung in there and, and they got it done. And, you know, that, Forest Society that they founded went on, is still going on today, has fought other fights, is involved in preserving land today, 
is involved in, and they're foresters who are in charge of it mostly. Well, it is it is miraculous that it got passed, and it seems like they had to be a little bit tricky with the wording of it and what the purpose of it was, and especially when you got somebody like Joe Cannon, who was one of it, 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 is it Joe Cannon, who seemed to just want everything to stay the way it was, and he, you quote him in the book as saying he was happy with everything, and he's he's talking about the good old days when there was no no eight hour law, no child labor law, no maternity law, no compulsory school law in that settlement, and he worked from morning till night in the woods and fields and did the chores afterwards. So so he seemed to kind of want things the way they've always been or the way they used to be and didn't like any new regulation and, and yeah, he said, anything don't, progressive. Don't talk to me about reform. America's a damn success and yeah. there's, there's some point like that. And, you know, we don't need any changing. Who no. needs maternity law and child labor laws? That's ridiculous. We don't need children. They're useless for <laughs> the, the first 10 years anyway. <laughs> the toll, the toll on people living that life and especially women was just hellacious if you go and read read what people went through. I mean, the accidents, the early death, the child death from accidents, but also the death in maternity. I just, you know, it was not as rosy as he's saying is what I'm trying to say here. Right, kind of right. There. right. Well, it was a hard life. It sounds like it. And you, you mentioned this Forest Service. One thing that was really, it kind of made me stop and reread the paragraph a couple times, is that when you talk about in the book that there's still people in, in states that want to take the land back, even today. Is, um, Not yeah, just early is, on, but ongoing. We're still fighting that battle? Well, yes, yeah, there's successive and many sagebrush rebellions, as they call them, out in the West, primarily out in the West, starting off like right out in 1907 at the start of the, you know, the Forest Service being out there, going on to as recently as, oh, about a decade ago when I think Utah voted in 2012, that the federal government, their legislature, should give back federal lands to people in Utah. They didn't mean they didn't mean the native people. They meant the white folks are there. <laughs> right. Um, Arizona, Arizona entertained a similar idea as a referendum, a voting a voting ballot initiative, and that went down two to one. Yet, you know, from time to time, there have been riders attached to budgets saying the federal government has to give this land back, disband national parks. And recently there was a the fight over those national monuments and Bears Ear and other places like that. So it still goes on today. If you hear their side of the story, they say they're very put upon all these regulations, all this land that, you know, is being controlled outside the state. I'm sure there are a lot of difficulties with that, but that's not just their land. That land belongs to some kid sitting on a stoop in Philadelphia, too. That land belongs to all of us. Howard, I love the way you started this chapter and you talk about being out in a national forest with your dog and your wife. And I thought, gosh, I relate to that, like being out in nature. And, and you know what song was just kind of playing in my head or what line of a song is this land is your land. Yeah. This land is my land. It's, that's how you feel. And I, I have to be honest with you. I thought national forests were just there for us to all go enjoy some nature with our dogs. I had no idea this was all based in money, money, money. But Well, I want to go back to one of your quotes. I think you've already mentioned this quote, Howard. It's so compelling. Commerce had destroyed the forests and commerce would save the forests. Mm. What that suggests so, to me is everything's all about the almighty dollar. It has nothing to do with environmental ethics or environmental justice. It has nothing to do with doing the right thing. It has <laughs> nothing to do with preserving this gift that the universe and Mother Earth had given us. It's all about the almighty dollar, always. God forbid we go out and enjoy some scenery. Right. Not one cent for scenery. Not one cent. The, it's brilliant. 
weeks that he translated it that way and got this bill across the finish line. I think it was a kind of, I don't know whose idea it was, whether it was his or somebody else's, but it was a brilliant way to kind of, oh, interstate commerce. Well, that's something the federal government is involved in. Right. Boom. They right. got it done. Right. So what, how safe are our forests? What's the future of the Weeks Act? Is it really protected? Is it going to be a gift to our children and grandchildren and their children? Or, you know, you mentioned in that chapter how there's an occasional attack by politicians wanting to sell off property to raise funds for things. Like, what's the future here? I think the National Forests will prevail. They will be there. And there are all sorts of organizations who just exist just to protect them. So it'll be fights. They'll be fighting all the way down. And there's going to be tremendous stresses on them from climate change, too. Yeah. So they will be there. And time and again, uh, there are going to be all sorts of stresses, even just from tourism, everybody getting out in the trail, all sorts of things. But they will be there. It's like a fragile inheritance. I think you can call it that. This episode of Infrastructure Junkies is proudly brought to you by my company, Blackbird Right-of-Way. We specialize in relocation assistance services nationwide. From one parcel to 100, let Blackbird handle your relocation challenges. You can find out more about us at our website. It's blackbirdrow.com. That's blackbirdrow.com. So all this land up in your neck of the woods in New Hampshire and the surrounding areas, which was clear cut, are the forests back now? It's beautiful. You wouldn't know it. If you didn't know the history of it, you'd say, oh, this has always been the way it is. Obviously, if you got in there with field biologists, they'd be able to point out the different kinds of species, the size of the trees and everything. But when you're up there, it's just a big country. The scale of everything, it's just kind of breathtaking. We owe so much that these people persevere to make this happen. It's just kind of an incredible thing. It is. And I'm so grateful for the Weeks Act. There's something about this that goes along with sort of a theme in the book, which, you know, when you talk about the dismal swamp and what happened there, which is really an environmental tragedy, if nothing else. Yeah. It's like in the 1800s and the early 1900s, use it up, burn it up. Like nobody right. seemed to care at all about what so many of us are passionate about today. And I wonder like why in the early 1900s or uh, when did we just start caring about the earth? When did we start caring about the forest? When did we start caring about the environment? I don't you know, know it when took it a long time. It took people like Henry David Thoreau. It took people like John Muir. It took those other voices to start saying this mm-hmm. and saying it and saying it. And we're still trying to get there. We're still not there, obviously. It's a constant battle. I mean, Thoreau's quote about what the forest meant to him, it's just a totally, I'd say, 180 degrees from a the logger Henry, you know, if you, mm-hmm. if you if you look at that quote in the chapter. Yeah. Can you read that quote? Yeah. Um, yeah. It's from, uh, I think, Thoreau's journal from June 22nd, 1853. That's right. That's right. I mean, okay. So he sits down in his journal. He kept a journal every day. There's amazing stuff in there. And Henry David Thoreau writes, I long for wildness, a nature which I cannot put my foot through. Woods where the wood thrush forever sings, where the hours are early morning ones, and there is dew on the grass, and the day is forever unproved, where I might have a fertile unknown for a soil about me, a New Hampshire everlasting and unfallen. So that's the opposite of land of many uses. That's seeing everything. That's really seeing the earth for what it is. We need the poets and the artists to make us all do the right thing. We sure do. 
Absolutely. So now we're going to take this chapter, the land of many uses that we've just discussed, and we're going to pivot a little bit. And the primary discussion so far has been about loggers, right? Or land companies, which stripped the property. And in the modern times, I think the battle has shifted from irresponsible logging to the irresponsible acquisition of property for purposes of utilities, roads, infrastructure, all right? And maybe it's not irresponsible that the power companies would say something different. But you have a chapter in your book called My Roots Are Deeper Than Your Pockets, which focuses on people who don't want to part with their land at any price. Yes, and this is quite a story. This is quite an, another epic battle. And again, the Forest Society happened to be involved in it. First, you have to know that this story starts decades earlier before it arrives in the North Country. And it starts up in Quebec, Canada, with Hydro-Quebec is probably one of the largest companies you've never heard of. It's the largest power generator in North America, owned by the government there. None of us knew anything about it. Until along about the mid-70s, the Cree came down to New York State, who was thinking of buying some of this hydropower, and said, hey, Governor, you're going to buy all this power to make a piece of toast in the morning and turn on your TV, but you're flooding out thousands of miles of our native lands. And everyone said, what? The Cree? What what are you talking about? It's hydropower. Hydropower is clean. Hydropower is wonderful. Hydropower is the green poster child. So Hydro-Quebec has flooded and altered an area, and it's hard to get a handle on this, an area roughly the size of New England, New York, and Pennsylvania combined. Or sometimes it said they have they have tremendous res they have reservoirs that cover hundreds of thousands of square miles. They have flooded forests, they have flooded wetlands. They have one reservoir alone that's a thousand square miles. They have altered and changed something like 14 rivers. They've made 250 dams and dikes. They've had 23 power stations. They've shut down and diverted a waterfall larger than Niagara, I think, as I read. And they've totally upset, even though there have been many treaties, the traditional lives of the Cree, Native people, and the Inua. Huge. And so, okay, but this is supposed to be green power. Is it? Yes. No. It's usually debated. There's a lot of CO2 uh, released from this operation. There's mercury that's been released. But the power is sitting up there now at a cheap price. And they have way more power, obviously, than they need in Canada and Quebec. And they wanted to come down to New York and Boston and Connecticut. Makes sense, right? So that's one issue, the power itself, Hydro-Quebec. Now, the other issue is, how do you get that power down here? So what happens, uh, I think it's long about 2010, is Hydro-Quebec makes this deal with Eversource, which is the big utility hereabouts that gives most people power in uh, parts of New Hampshire, Massachusetts, and Connecticut. They say, we're going to build this $1.1 billion power line, and it's going to come down, and it's going to come right here. And they present this as just about a done deal. It's coming through here. And here it comes, folks. And that's where the problem sets in. Because all of a sudden, this, the title of the chapter, My Roots Are Deeper From Your po- your Pockets, are from this farmer. He has 960-some-odd acres. His family's been on this land forever. It's a phenomenal piece of land. I wrote around what. You show me around on it. It just rises and rises up through all these pastures. And then you're looking deep into Vermont. You're looking north into Canada. This is at the very top of New Hampshire. If you imagine sort of New Hampshire like a little gloved hand, like a finger sticking him, that's where it is. Beautiful, beautiful place. What he cares about is the land. He says, you wreck it, and the history goes with the wreckage. 
he doesn't want to sell. And these power lines are about 140 feet tall. That's a 14-story building, essentially. Not an inconsequential thing. Wow. So as right-of-way experts and professionals, the question comes down to, wasn't there another way to do this? And there are parallels right with this. Over in Vermont, Hydro-Quebec came into Vermont and they said, you know what? We're going to come down. We're going to use existing right-of-way, except for a very small area. We're going to bury the line under Lake Champlain, and we're going to come down the Hudson. I think we're burying the line under the Hudson, and we're going to pay you, Vermont, for the right to cross under it. Done deal. In and out. Done deal. Here, totally bogged down. So what happens is, 1975, you have the Cree facing this. And then a few years later in the 90s, you have the Inuit facing this. And then all of a sudden, you have like a farmer in New Hampshire who's essentially facing the same thing that the Cree and the Inuit faced. What is this? Who's Hydro-Quebec? No one's heard of it. What do you mean you want to buy an easement or buy my land? And what do you mean this is the only route you can take? So the people up in the North Country have a very strong land ethic. And they said, no, wait a minute. I would be willing to take the hit for this if this was the only way to do this. But you haven't shown me that. You've just come in here and said, this is what's going to happen. So it was a very protracted, again, I think it was about a nine-year battle. The state has this group called the Site Evaluation Committee that has to have all these hearings. And they had all these hearings, and they approved it. Uh, the Forest Society fought them by buying land and making them move the line all over the place. And then it was appealed to the state Supreme Court. And to everybody's surprise, the state Supreme Court said, no, you're not coming through here. Took a real toll on people. I followed the protests, the hearings. For some people, it became their lives. They go into hearings, writing letters, getting their representatives up there, walking around with signs, trying to get the media attention. And then as it went on, you'd see different people would drop out. You know, an illness would happen in the family, a marriage would stress, the job would go bad. And other people would be in the, the movement or the hearings to happen. And other people had different approaches. It was really striking. And it, it's a really tough thing because on one hand, you say, this land is what I have. This land is who I am. And you're saying over here, and reasonably so, execution aside, this is cheaper power, greener power that's needed elsewhere. I'm sorry, we're going to walk right over you. So very emotional, very painful confrontation. Mm -hmm. Howard, in that chapter, you told the story of a woman by the name of Lynn Placey. And really, it was a story of her and some of her family members. This woman... Her background to me is really compelling in that she was not wealthy. She earned her living by teaching piano lessons. She got by. She got by, yeah. She got she by, just, and there's not as many kids taking piano lessons, even though I had to do it for seven years. It's $7 a, a small, lesson. She has a small ranch house. I yeah. visited her. It's small. Her husband had injured himself in his job and had broken his back. So he was she was tending him in one room, and then she'd come into the living room and teach piano lessons. And I think she had an organ that had belonged to her mother. That's how she got by. And she had land that had come into the family from her husband. It's where they first courted. It's where they took their children. It's where they taught each daughter how to fish. It's where they camped. I mean, it meant something. They just weren't holding it. And she could have sold an easement. She could have sold the land outright, and she would have been okay money-wise. There's not a lot of money kicking around up in that part of the country, I got to yeah. tell you. Yeah. And she wouldn't do it. She just wouldn't do it. But her nephew did causing her to have to have her land surveyed and she had to have people made donations so she could afford to have her land surveyed to make sure the lot lines are right. She had to yeah. raise no, that money. No, yeah. she had to raise that money. 
this farmer, uh, Rod McAllister, who I've mentioned, who said, my roots are deeper than your pockets. Right. His nephew, one of his nephews saw that. I said, well, does that make things difficult? I mean, he said, I'll tell you what, it don't make things any easier. I mean, he was very diplomatic. But there were just families, I don't know if they're talking now, who stopped talking to each other. Right. It right. was really painful. And I, there was leaders in their community, uh, the, the, this fellow Hicks who ran the hardware store, he was again it, and then he sold. And then people didn't know what to do because they don't boycott people up there. You have to rely on each other. But they were just heartbroken. Yeah, and it's really an amazing human story. When you have a woman who's scraping by by teaching piano lessons, whose husband has passed away, and she gets a little bit of a Mm -hmm. Social Security check, and needs the money. She needs the money, and her nephew comes to see her and says, Hey, Auntie, you could sell your land for a half million dollars. I mean, you'd be set for life up there if you sold the land, and she wouldn't do it. No, she absolutely wouldn't, and she wrote a letter to the paper, and then people started sending a little donations and cheering on. It's a big story. I kind of, It kind of reminds me of the movie Chinatown, you know, with the water coming to L.A. and everybody. This is a kind of, it's not the same, but it's similar in that this is an epic story of trying to get kilowatts couple of hundred miles, a couple of thousand miles, and everybody in the way of it, and everybody having to come terms with it. And there have to be other ways to do this, because this, I, to me, I mean, you could tell me you guys are the right-of-way professionals. This could, be, could, this could serve as a model of how not to do it. Mm-hmm. You could take a Hydro-Quebec and Eversource and teach us, okay, if you don't want to get your project done, this is how to do it, you know? I think they lost track of what the goal was. The goal was to find a way to get their power down to the metropolitan areas. But the goal became for them to go on this route. There were other existing right-of-ways within New Hampshire and over the border in Vermont. They could have taken. There were other routes they could have taken, but they wanted to do this. Why? Why were they so dead set on it? I don't really understand that. I think if they did it this way, they own the right-of-way themselves and have to pay rent to anybody. That's all I can figure. I never really understood it. The Forest Society, who we mentioned earlier, took a bold stand against this, bought easements to block them. It was like this big Chetland chess game, showed how there'd be different routes, said that this was just the first of many large power lines coming. Now, folks who live in built-up areas say, oh, I've got, I see power lines on my commute all the time. What's the big deal? When you get up there and you go up a ridge and you're just seeing the horizon and the trees and there's nothing, it's a phenomenal view. Mm-hmm. And it was a real part of who they were and are up there. They are, they would tell you up there that they are the real New Hampshire and us folks here, I'm in the southern part of the state towards my, we're not, we're just a bunch of, I don't know, flatlanders or something. But <laughs> they're very independent minded. They really stick together. Let me tell you this, this isn't in the chapter, but when I was up there reporting, I spent the most amazing day. Everyone I went to talk to was involved in doing something and just really happy, even though they were in this real fight for their lives. This state rep got off his tractor, he was bush hogging or something, to come talk to me. This doctor was like building, moving his well and building a new line with two other people. And he, he was a psychiatrist. And he was happy, even though he was very concerned about this and his neighbors, and understood that his neighbors needed the money. And he was like really into it. Lynn Placey, she was facing this tremendous stress, but she was happy because she loved her life. She loved teaching piano. I can't imagine. Uh, <laughs> I, you know, I said, how, how do you hear all these bad notes over and over? She said, oh, but she said, oh, I can hear what's coming. 
I can see Aww. what's going to come. She just had this great idea. And on and on like that all day long. I mean, from the early in the morning to late, late at night. Rod McCallis, he says, the farmer, he says, we don't make any money from these cows. I'm not gung-ho crazy about cows. And he wasn't. But he said, just being here, we're standing up on this hill. He says, my brother went into the army. He saw the world. I saw this. And I could look at this every day and I'm never tired of it. Just incredible. Just yeah. Incredible. I can put this into perspective in my own experience here. And you said it before I could say it. I was going to say, well, what's the big deal? You know, power line. When I was a kid, my aunt and uncle who were from Kentucky took me to Mammoth Cave, like the Mm -hmm. biggest underground cave in the world or something like that. It's really phenomenal. And the tour guide at the time said, hey, you know what? You've really never heard. You've never heard silence. And we're like, well, yeah, we uh, we have to be silent in class. Like, no, no, no. There's no such thing as real silence. There's always a car going by or the wind is blowing or a TV in the background. And he said, what we're going to do is we're all going to stand here and we're going to hear real silence for the first time ever. And they did it. And I'm like, that is the first time I've ever heard silence. Well, have we ever seen unadulterated landscape before? Have you ever seen a mountain range that's not touched by human industry or have human fingerprints on it have you ever really seen a range of mountains without a power line without a road without a house unspoiled territory that's it and you get up there and you let it soak into you go oh oh my gosh there's a depth to this land and a depth of attachment to this land that you have to step back and appreciate right and the folks planning this line didn't understand that if they had come to him and said, okay, we're going to bring this line down, we're going to use existing right-of-ways, and we're going to need five or six or ten miles of new right-of-ways, they probably would have gotten through, you know? What you said reminds me of something Sherwood Anderson, the American novelist, 1920s or something. He said this great thing about the old men he saw around him growing up out in the prairies. He said, is it not likely that when the country was new and men were often alone in the fields and forests, they got a sense of bigness outside themselves that has now in some way been lost. Mm. He said it took the shrillness out of them. They'd learned the trick of quiet. It affected their whole lives. It made them significant. Oh, I and love that, that. That's what people said to me over and over in different ways. You know, this guy, John Harrigan, who died just a couple of years, big outdoorsman, columnist, newspaper man. He said that, and they're, you know, they, they go out and hunt, and they go out, but they'd live it. They'd live it, you know? I loved hearing about John Harrington, but I think John and Lynn and all the people that you talk about in this book are just absolute heroes because it's easy to give, it's easy to chase the money. And we talk about all the time, you know, people say all the time, it's not personal, it's business. It's not personal. It's not personal to the logging companies. It's not personal to the hydroelectric companies. It's damn personal to these people. And I love the concept that I never understood or even contemplated until reading this book and this chapter about people's identity being tied to the land. And there's a quote from John Harrington that just stopped me in my tracks as many of your, many parts of your book have done, but he, I'm going to read it. So John Harrington is talking about the land and you, you say to him, so you're saying it's like faith. And then you say, faith has been described as the evidence of things not seen. But for people with strong ties to the land, their faith is the evidence of the things they can see and that they wish big companies would see as well. John explains it this way. I love this quote. John says, I've got some meat in my refrigerator that came from a deer that a guy shot up on my first meadow. 
my first hayfield. I've watched that deer grow up. My mother's and father's ashes are in that hayfield. Then he chokes up and continues, as are my younger brothers. I'm eating ashes and microbes that grew into grass that the deer ate. It's just the way it is. I'm from the land. I'm on the land. I love the land. And eventually, I'll go back to the land. What? Yeah. Mic drop. That's it. And that made these hearings very painful. Mm -hmm. Because you had this site evaluation committee and the corporation saying, look, we'll do the best we can, but we've got to bring this power line here. And they're saying, no, no, you don't understand. They they might as well have been speaking two different languages. It was very hard to see. These hearings were held over and over. I, I think... It's I think it's significant, particularly too, because I think we're going to have a lot more of this in the future. You've read the reports. If we're going to have more green energy, we need more power lines. We have a population increase, and we've got to build more things. There's more people in the way of wherever we're going to build. The easy places have been built in, built on and built in and built through. This is, I think this is the future. I yeah. think these, and, trying, and trying to figure out how do you do this, it's really hard. And it's not going to be solved with money. And I talked about this the first time you were on with us as a relocation expert and consultant. I always feel like, well, we can get some money and it'll be fine. Money, you couldn't have given Lynn Placey a billion dollars for that property. It was not same, for sale. It was not for sale. Same thing McAllister. He could have used the money. You know, he didn't yeah. like cows particularly. You know, they <laughs> messing with cows. The dairy prices. If you want to see something complicated, you should see how dairy prices are supported and everything. It, yeah. Foreign policy is simpler. It's just crazy. <laughs> You know, Howard, this chapter once again humanizes the effects of our industry. Thank okay, you. it yeah. demonstrates, and this is why I think this book is so important to right away professionals because there, people who work for a power company probably need to hear these stories because they haven't heard them. All they're looking for is their next bonus or a dividend for their shareholders, whatever the case may be. But you've humanized the story here, and that's why this is so important. So I want to ask you before we wrap up, I want to ask you in your words, like you've got us as a captive audience here, what is the lesson of this chapter to the right-of-way industry or the infrastructure development industry? What is the lesson of the chapter? The first lesson, I think, is the attachment to home isn't just something emotional. It's something essential. It's something, it's a bedrock feeling that people have. The second is there's got to be a way for right-of-way professionals to design, maybe through kind of game theory or whatever you want to do, to design better ways to do this, to come up with ways of consensus, to come up with ways where the landholders are on the boards and on the decisions from the start so you don't get to these us and them situations. That's got to be part of it. I really think that's got to be part of it. But you've got to know that this is painful from the start because there's going to be winners and losers in every project. And you just can't come in and say, okay, you're the loser. We'll compensate you to a certain degree, but you lose, we win. Sorry. That just doesn't go anymore. People are too smart for that. Right. Right. Well, w- w- <laughs> that, that's a great vision. It's very utopian. How do it's we get there? very easy to say here, but yeah. boy, when you get down to the details, good luck. No, I, I totally agree with what you're coming back. I mean, absolutely. Yeah. I think this is the future, deciding what's going to be saved, what's going to be used, and to whose benefit or not. You know, that's mm-hmm. what we're facing. There's going to be a lot more evenings like the evenings I spent at these hearings for that power line and another chapter of the pipeline. If you wanted to expand a highway or put a high-speed converter rail line to a high-speed rail line, 
just people living everywhere. It's really going to be hard, I think. Yeah. Indeed. Well, I got to tell you, Howard, I've read your book probably twice. I read it once and then I've gone back and read chapters again. I've listened to it. It's a game changer for us in this industry. And I'll say it again, listeners, if you haven't checked this book out, you are doing yourself a disservice. It's a really, really important book. And I cannot tell you how honored we are that you were willing to come back and share some insights with our listeners yet again. Well, thank you. I really enjoyed it. And I'm, I'm just really honored and totally surprised that your folks and your other professionals have taken to the book. I never would have predicted that ever. Well, maybe this begins to accomplish what you said the lessons were in that last chapter, right? Yeah. Yeah. One more question. Will you come back again? I would love to. Absolutely. Sure. All right. Excellent. Infrastructure junkies next season, Howard Mansfield's going to return. Thanks for joining us, Howard. Thanks. Thank you very much. 